Welcome back in listeners to another wonderful episode of Whisper in the Wings from Stage Whisper. We are joined by two wonderful guests today. We have the composer and orchestrator, Louis Josephson, and the librettist and lyricist, Jay Cicchetti, who both have a new show called Relapse the Musical, and it's preparing for an equity showcase later this summer and early fall. With that, Lewis, Jay, welcome to Whisper in the Wings from Stage Whisper. It's so wonderful to have you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us, Andrew. Absolutely. I am very excited to have you here. I'm excited to learn more about Relapse the Musical. I mean, the, the name alone, done, sold. Like, who, who wouldn't want to hear more about it? So let's start off by having you two tell us a little bit about the show. This show, which is based on real stories from real, both professionals within the mental health community and also patients throughout different behavioral institutions and behavioral disciplines, is about about four different characters who all are in a group therapy session. And they are all working through their own mental health journeys and realizing that mental health isn't a race. It is all about communication and community and empathy. And without it, we feel isolated and alone and that can leave us to our darkest thoughts. Or in our show, they are physicalized by the kind of weird, intrusive thought Greek chorus called the faceless. Hmm. That's very interesting. Lewis, would you like to add a little bit more to that? If I don't really have much to add. Yeah, Jay covered most of it. I guess, you know, this show is definitely a very relevant d- discussion topic nowadays, which is the main reason why we're writing it. Not only do we have, you know, people we know influence in some of these characters, but we know people who feel as if they can relate to these characters. You know, the show is just a way to keep the conversation going. It's a way for someone to say, hey, I can relate to that. You know, it's a way to sort of put words and music to you know, feelings which may be hard to express. Lewis, if I can stick with you for this next question, how did you come up with the idea for the show or where did you get your inspiration from? Well, Jay and I have been working together since, so I'm 21 now. We've been working since I was like, gosh, I want to say like 12 or 13. We had the same voice teacher when they were in high school and I was in middle school. And the first show we wrote together, this is like, this is not answering your question right away, but I will, I promise. (laughs) The first show we wrote together was a children's musical based on Aesop's fables. We had the same voice teacher who kind of put us together. And so we wrote that show and we said, hey, we should write something new. And, you know, this was at a time where we were both, you know, they were in high school, I was in middle school. So we were both sort of beginning to explore mental health for ourselves and for, you know, our peers around us and thought like, you know, we should write something. Well, simply we said we should write something that's different than what we're already writing now. And as we grew up writing this project, we began to really understand what we were writing more and more because we were like, oh yeah, like this character makes so much more sense now, you know, based on things that we've gone through or other people have gone through. I love that. Jay, what has it been like developing this show? So when we started, I think 
a lot of the conversations and ideas we were having, because we were both relatively young. I was about 18, 19 when we had started, and Lewis was about maybe at most 14 when we had started this show. We definitely were thinking about, you know, subject matters and and storylines that were going to kind of blow things up and kind of like shock people. You know, we were playing around with how do certain characters get into the ward? You know, what are the behaviors of the uh, professionals within the ward? What are the interpatient relationships? And those are all things that we've continued to explore. But throughout time, we really were trying to strive away from the bombastic and the and the typical stories you hear about mental health and behavioral institutions and wards. We didn't want to create a One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest musical. We wanted to create something that spoke to people right now who are really going through it, whether they are in a facility long-term, outpatient, inpatient, whether they are you know, going through rehab, not in a facility, but going through either drug or alcohol rehab, or whether sometimes people end up just going in for a 72-hour hold and you end up being really seeing for a very short period of time the world around you. And we want to make sure that we were creating stories and and because over time we end up starting to use a lot of people's stories for elements. We want to make sure we were approaching it with respect and with empathy. And most of all, we were creating a story that didn't vilify the system, which in a lot of ways can be seen as broken and didn't vilify the patients because they are not in control of sometimes the things that go on within their brain and the thoughts that they have and the actions that they call, that those thoughts can cause them to do. We wanted to create a show that really allowed everyone to kind of be seen as human, flawed, and also so in control once they realized of their own narrative and stop allowing the world to give them the narrative of their mental health. They can create their own one. You know, over time, we found that certain storylines we used to, in earlier versions of the script, have a relationship between a doctor character and a patient, which does happen in a lot of, a lot of programs, strangely. There was actually a huge lawsuit with an eating disorder institution where there was a lot of misconduct. And over time, we realized that having that kind of storyline in the show, while it does happen, didn't do anything to further our characters, didn't do anything to allow the audience to connect to the characters. It was almost more shock value. And so within the last, I would say within the last two years, a lot of the show became more grounded in reality within the stories themselves. And within the last year, the the setup behind the world really became more surreal. The show used to be a typical two-act structure with a main protagonist that we followed along and all the other patients were kind of just periphery characters who kind of affected this main character. And it really got to a point where we were fighting whether or not it was this main character's story, Adam, or if the story was being pulled towards these other characters who also have very vivid and very needed stories to tell. So we did a 19 hour industry reading last year with our incredible director named Joey McNeely, who is a professional in this business and has been working in this business for almost 30 years, if not over that. And throughout that process, we got a lot of really great feedback. And then 
I went to work, Lewis and I went to work, and we revamped the entire show. So now it is a 90-minute kind of in real time exploration of mental health. And by allowing the faceless, the street chorus to exist, we allow the characters to stay in reality, but allow the world around them to be heightened and theatrical and allow a lot of the things that are not being said to be vocalized or physicalized through dance and song. Wow. I love all of that. So Lewis, coming back to you, what is the message or thought that you're hoping comes through in this show the audiences will take away that's a really tough question you know because i think like everyone is going to have a different reaction to this i think what i would want audience members to take away is to just have something in the keep something in the back of their mind you know because it is it is hard to ask for help and you can't you know let someone to ask for help but you can leave a little tidbit Right. And they might think about it later and say, oh, you know, that is a good point. And I think there are a lot of little messages in this show that might be helpful towards someone's recovery and and, and overall mental health. You know, like this show isn't just for, you know, people who are actively in treatment. It's really for anyone. Right. We all have a little bit of depression, a little bit of anxiety. You know, we all worry. And this show, I'd say the main thing I want someone to take away is is to just say, you know, it's okay. What's going on? You know, I, there, there are tools for this. That's fantastic. No, that, I think that's an important message to have. I especially like that you said, it's okay to ask for help. Jay, what about you? What is the message or thought you're hoping audiences will take away from this? Yeah. I mean, it's, I have like two major ones and they kind of go hand in hand. One is that a lot of times in our society, people who have, you know, mental health issues, especially some of the issues that we cover in this show, you know, we have a character dealing with alcoholism, we have a character dealing with schizophrenia, we have a character dealing with borderline personality disorder, and we have another character dealing with uh, bulimia nervosa. So a lot of these disorders are extremely stigmatized and I think something I really want people to take away is that your mental health, whatever it may be, whether it's just chronic depression or anxiety or, you know, emotional processing, whatever it can be, is valid and okay for you. You know, it's not something to be looked at as a weakness. It's not something to be looked at as your othering or your ostracization, the reason for an ostracization. It's it's the way that you interact with the world and the way the world interacts with you. And there's nothing wrong with that. And then in hand with that, it's okay to have negative thoughts. It's okay to have rough days. It's okay to hit rock bottom. Because when you hit rock bottom, there's only one way to go, up. But you have to realize that there is always light in that darkness, you know? Some people go go about it alone. Some people really kind of hermit themselves and kind of really fight their own battles alone. And some people ask for help. And for me, a lot of my strategies in my life for a while were very much taking on things alone. And it wasn't until very recently, within the last two or three years, that I realized asking for help, even if it's just in small ways, allows you to not give your 
your weight to somebody else. You don't want to give it away. But allow somebody else to help shoulder the burden for a hot second so you can breathe, so you can walk. You're not feeling crippled, but instead being supported. So yeah, definitely your mental health is not a weakness. It is what makes, it's part of what makes you you. It's not your identity either, but it's definitely a crucial part of who you are. And it's okay to have bad moments, but knowing that there is always a life or a possibility on the other side can get you through especially with a good support system. And all you have to do is ask, say the two words, the three words, I need help. Yes. My final question for this first part of the interview, I want to start with you, Jay, keep with you, is who do you hope have access to the show? It's such a cliche answer to say everyone, but I think this show means something different to almost each age demographic. You know, I think for, you know, Gen Z, you know, a lot of the teenagers to early 20 year olds, I think they are really going to connect with a lot of these patients and just feel like they can breathe a little bit. I, I hope that it creates the conversations that it needs and the the visibility that it needs, like Adir Evan Hansen did a couple years ago. I hope for the millennials that as a millennial, it stops us from feeling like we were crazy all along. You know, I feel like we were really the first generation to go. It's sometimes not enough to get therapy. It's important that we have these conversations. Stop locking it behind closed doors. So I think by allowing this conversation to be so in the forefront of a show allows us to feel like we were being seen as well. I think for older generations, you know, I think there's a lot of acceptance and acknowledgement within themselves of hopefully relating to not only the patients, but also our professionals within the show. We have a really great character that is a nurse who is struggling with, you know, how much emotion she puts into her patients and how much does she keep for herself. And a doctor who's really struggling with resources and trying to understand his patients that have kind of gone beyond what he was used to for a while. But also I hope understanding that there's so much more to the world of mental health. So I'm hoping everyone gets a little something and I'm hoping that, I really hope that for the millennials and for the Gen Z, this is a show that allows them to feel seen and allows them to feel heard and allows them to open up their own conversations. And I hope for older generations, the same exists, but also maybe some more understanding for the conversations that are being had rather than trying to silence them. Lewis, what about you? That was a pretty good answer. Yeah, I mean everyone. I mean, why not? You know, there's there's no reason to limit to limit the audience for this. If someone if someone finds this and you know takes just one little piece from it, that's great. That's all that matters. If someone takes nothing from it, at least they still saw the show. And honestly, seeing the show is is still something. And as I said earlier, like you know, someone might remember this. 10 years from now when they hit rock bottom and they might be like, oh my God, yeah. Remember where I was when I listened to this song? And if I can piggyback, mental health doesn't have an age. You know, you know, behavioral issues, even just everyday, day-to-day, you know, emotional processing, it doesn't have an age. So I think that allows the show to hopefully relate to everybody throughout you know, hopefully it's a very long life within, you know, 
this next production and uh, future productions. things now to our second part of the interview and give our audience a chance to get to know the two of you a little bit better. I'd like to first start by asking the two of you who are musically based, it seems like, who, what inspires you? What composers, shows, uh, even playwrights inspire you or are some of your favorites? And Lewis, if I can start with you on this one. My favorite composers. I mean, I love Stephen Sondheim. I love Jonathan Larson. I love Billy Joel. I love Elton John, The Beatles. I love Steely Dan. I love The Who. I love Stravinsky. I love Bartok. I love Brahms. I like a lot of music. Those are just a few. What a great eclectic mix in there. I love that. Yeah. You can really hear it in his music. I can't wait to hear that. Jay, what about you? As both a playwright for plays and as a lyricist, somebody that I really idolize in a lot of ways and, and I try to emulate within what I do in my life is Howard Ashman. He had such a brilliant, you know, viewpoint on the necessity of I want songs, the necessity of story-driven musicals, you know. And a lot of times we think of him as just the guy who wrote the music to some of our favorite Disney movies in the early Renaissance. Or sometimes we think of him as the guy who wrote the music with Alan Menken for uh, Little Mermaid. But Howard Ashman actually wrote the book. I mean, also Little Shop of Horrors. But I meant Howard Ashman wrote the book for Little Shop of Horrors, directed Little Shop of Horrors, ran his own theater company in the village for a very long time, has written multiple uh, musicals as a book writer and a lyricist. And something you'll always find in each of his musicals, whether they were huge or, or and, and, you know, successes or flops, is a certain heart and honesty that you don't really get in a lot of other shows of that time period. You know, Little Shop and Smile and, you know, shows like that were coming out during the mega musical time period. So to have shows that were based a little bit more in honesty, even with more outlandish, you know, premises, really inspired me. It inspires me to this day. And I, I wish I could have seen what he wrote, you know, before, if he got to live longer. But unfortunately, the universe uh, didn't work that way. I am also inspired by Aaron Simplarity. I think they are two, one of the best uh, songwriting duos, other than maybe a future uh, where it's me and Lewis as part of that list of great songwriting, musical writing duos. But Eggers and Flaherty write shows that challenge the audience while still entertaining them. You know, I think of Once on this Island, Ragtime, Dessa Rose, Lucky Stiff, which, while being hilarious and not as well known as the other shows they've done, like Susicle, it still asks a lot of really great questions while also being like one of the best farces 
I've seen in recent years as a musical. And then you have J.R.B. Parade and Stephen Sondheim, who is a legend. I think Lewis and I collectively grieved for like a week together after his passing. So definitely when it comes to musicals, I'd say those are my anchors. I'm always drawn to like an Andrew Lippa occasionally or, or, or especially with like John and Jen or Big Fish. But I think Aaron Flaherty and Howard Ashman are definitely where I live. Also Harvey Firestein within his writing. Lakash Alfal, which he helped write with, with Jerry Herman, gorgeous. And he also helped re- rewrite books for many musicals and write the book for Newsies and all that. So I love Harvey. I'll say Newsies. So definitely, definitely those are like my my inspirations and in what I do and what I write. Uh, at least for musicals. Plays, it's a little bit of a different story. I get a little bit more eclectic and a little bit more weird with plays. Uh, a lot of Last Days of Judas Iscariot and Buried Child and stuff like that are my inspirations for my plays. I love all of that. So let me ask you both a question. Have you seen any great theater that you might be able to recommend to our listeners? I just saw Sweeney Todd and it was... Flippin' amazing. Oh my God. I also saw I am so jealous. I also saw some like it hot and it was flippin' amazing. Yeah, those were two great shows. Go see it. And then for me, I saw Kimberly Kimbo right before Christmas break. And I love I love the play initially. So I knew I was going to like the music, especially because it was David Lindsay a bear and then Janine Tesori. Like, how do you get any better than that? But it was such a charming musical. Uh, you know, I, I think it's a show where some of the songs do have that earworm quality, but it's a show that really like just sucks you into its world. It has a magnetism to it. And though it's a small story, it still makes you feel like it's worthy of being told. And I love those kinds of shows, especially as we're seeing more and more movie musicals and stuff like that on Broadway. I really, really loved it. I also can't recommend enough the Into the Woods revival. It's touring the country right now. So if you don't live in New York, this is a great opportunity for you to see one of the best revivals, I think, of recent years that still has a lot of the cast members from when it was on Broadway. I'm about to go see it for like the third time. I'm about to go see it at the Kimmel Center in Philly. But I really want to go see Shucked. I've heard nothing but good things about Shucked. And I know nothing about it other than corn. And I really <laughs> want to go see Anne Juliet because one of my good friends from college is one of the understudies for the three main male roles. And I really want to see him when he's covering one night. So, and I think jukebox musicals get such a bad rap, but sometimes they're really what we need, especially after the last couple of years. We just need a show that doesn't take itself too seriously. It's a lot of fun. It has a lot of heart. And I, I think that's what Anne Juliet is. Oh, and I saw six but I don't need to talk about why people should go see six. Just go see shit. This is six. I saw, I saw six after I got broken up with, and it is the most cathartic show after that, I will say, because you're just sitting there going, yes, queen, you don't need him the entire time. It was incredible. Also just one of the best shows to go see because it's literally 70 minutes, maybe 80 minutes. And then you leave and you like walk out and you're like, what do I do with the rest of my night in New York city? Wow. So, yeah, no, those are my recommendations. Let me ask you, what is your favorite part about working in the theater? It is a living, breathing beast. 
you know, you want something locked in time and never changing, you make a movie, you make TV shows. Although with TV shows, you know, as seasons go on, if you get greenlit for seasons, more seasons, you can have your characters change and evolve and be able to take in the fan response and be able to maybe do some fan service. And occasionally with movies, you can, if you have sequels, be able to hear what your fans said about the first one. But, you know, I think the beauty about theater is the fact that every show in some even minute way will never be like the show before. There will always be a consistency, but if you put your breath in the in a different place tonight, or if you put the emphasis on a different word, or if you have a Tuesday night crowd versus a Saturday matinee crowd, it creates completely different shows. You're still getting the same amount of effort, telling the same amount of sto- uh, same story, and having the same amount of fun and heart and love, but it really allows the show to evolve and to feel different and be special for you. You know, not only as an actor, a performer, a director, a, a playwright, a composer, but also for an audience member. You know, I think that's what I love about being the theater. And I think there is a suspension of this belief that I also really love. And, and the stories you can tell on stage, the minute you have to focus it in some form of reality and the the minute you have to put, you know, a a camera up against it and say, there are rules to the space and we have to concretely place them on the floor and on the walls and create those boundaries is the moment that the imagination is taken away for not only the artist, but also the audience. So I think that's why I love the Into the Woods revival so much is because in its simplicity, you allow the audience to kind of fill in those gaps. So I think that's that's what I love. And sorry, I'll promise this is my last little tidbit, but you know, I think so often we are used to certain shows being done the same way over and over and over again. So if those two things are what I love about the industry as a whole, something that I love to bring into the industry is looking at shows in completely different ways. You know, looking at, like, for a while, it's funny we talk about Parade. I've been wanting to do it as an immersive experience and really setting it in a courtroom and allowing the audience to sit in the jury box and forcing the audience to really ask the questions of, because the beautiful thing about Parade is, is that that show is based on a case that is still cold to this day. You know, we never got the retrial and so much was found out about the case, uh, about the original trial that was corrupted that we really do not know who was the re- uh, who was the culprit behind Mary Fagan's death. Um, so allowing the audience to kind of try to formulate their own version of events, which is already in the show, but putting it even more in a palpable space. I'm currently directing a production of Penelope Ad, which is a, a really brilliant play written by Margaret Atwood, by who's famous for Handmaid's Tale. And it takes the Odyssey, but tells it from Penelope's point of view. It's an all-female and non-binary and trans cast. And, you know, we're doing it outdoors against this gorgeous facade of columns and Grecian poles and these porcelain stairs. And I think allowing pieces to be seen not in the way that they're used to or challenging an audience's expectations with this with the piece 
and also potentially bringing pieces that are not as regularly seen into the audience's limelight. You know, I think that's what I also really love about what I want to bring into the industry. And what I love about this industry is that it's, it's a breeding ground for new ideas and new ways to look at things. So. I love all that. Lewis, what is your favorite part about working in the theater? Collaboration. I love working with people. You know, I could write, you know, string quartets and solitude forever. But at the end of the day, I'm handing the sheet music over to musicians who are going to play it. You know, I love just working with playwrights and choreographers and directors and singers and actors and and instrumentalists and like people, other artists. That's my favorite thing to do pretty much ever at all. Yeah. Absolutely. We have now arrived at my favorite question. Definitely. And I, I, I'm so excited to learn both of yours. What is your favorite theater memory? And Jay, why don't we start with you on that? So speaking of Michael Arden from earlier, one of the most life-changing moments in my entire existence has been seeing Hunchback of Notre Dame back in, I think it was like, 2015, 2016, uh, Paper Mill Playhouse. If anybody knows me, they know that all I do is basically talk about Hunchback half the time. I got to play Quasimodo a couple years ago, and it, it, it was probably one of my favorite shows. I saw it three times in a row, and I lived cur- during that time like an hour and ten away from Melbourne, and I'm I made that drive three different times to go see that show within the four weeks it was playing. It was beautiful and heartfelt. And the storytelling, I always loved the movie, but something about how they adapted that show to the stage made almost the movie for me obsolete. It, It brought such a gravity and respect and care and uh, really brought a lot of what, you know, was from the original novel into the show. And I, I don't think I cried in a show as much as I did during that. You know, it, it, it touched me. And then a couple years later, getting to play Quasimodo, you know, I, I'm a... I am a plus size theater nerd, you know, who never really felt like I fit in all these years. And Quasi being an outcast and longing for love and connection is something I really connected with. At the time that I played him, I played him when I was like maybe 23 in 2018. And I think the journey of, of Hunchback and what's left with me is is the most pro- profound theater experience. Because getting to see it touched me in one way. It, it made me, you know, really feel seen by a show. And then getting to play the character, getting to really inhabit him. I learned sign language. I worked with, you know, dialect coaches because uh, Quasi in the show can be played with a hearing impairment. And I have a little bit of hearing loss. But to really think about somebody who grew up around those pills and everything and, and Getting to look up at my Esmeralda every night and fall in love with her. It was just, you know, even as, you know, a plus size gay theater nerd, it it really, like, leaving myself at the door and becoming this other person, 
it's a show and a character that will always stay with me. And I don't I don't think it, it'll it'll ever leave. I look forward to the day I get to put, do that show again and then grow into Clopin and then direct it, you know? So definitely Hunchback of Notre Dame. I love that, Jay. And from one plus size theater lover to another, there is plenty of room for us here in the community. So you Absolutely. have found a home and you are welcomed and loved. And I love that you shared that. So thank you. Thank you. Lewis, what is your favorite theater memory? I think my favorite theater memory is our first Zitz probe for Relapse. Ooh. That was the first time I heard a musical that I wrote, like, done with, like, instruments and singers. And, like, it was awesome. Just, I was sitting next to my mom. Just, like, hearing one song after the next after the next. And I was like, I wrote all of these songs. And just hearing my mom be like, oh, my God, I love that. Oh, my God. I was like, thanks, Mom. And just, like, looking at Jay, just like, yeah, that's that's what that song's supposed to sound like. And I remember the director came up to us. And he was like, this is not what I thought the show was at first. That was awesome. The other the other moment that's com- that's competing with that is when I was cast in Aida. I was in fifth grade and I was at summer camp and I had just seen Aida at the community theater. And Elton John was like my favorite thing ever at the time. So just like everything coming together. I was just like, oh my God, it's so cool. What a small world. And I was in fifth grade. So like, that was cool to me then. Like now it'd be like, whatever. But, you know, fifth grade me loved it. So those are just two. There's so many more. I love those still. I I love them both. And I love both of your memories. Thank you both so much for sharing those. That's fantastic. Are there any other projects or productions that either of you have coming down the pipeline that we might be able to plug? Well, like I said, I'm directing a production of the Penelope Ad, written by Margaret Atwood in Staten Island, June 16th, 17th, 23rd, and 24th. It's with an incredible all-female, all-non-binary and trans cast, and it has a all-female and non-binary creative team. And it's a show that I think will challenge people and, you know, entertain them and it's basically a musical because it's a play with music and we have a amazing composer working on it who's a female composer but working with Lewis has really helped me collaborate with other composers you know so I have that going up and right now just working on a lot of rewrites for for relapse and working with the incredible Lewis Josephson, who is, you know, not only my writing partner, but basically a little brother to me and getting to work with him is an honest to goodness blessing. So, you know, literally sending him lyrics within the next two days, I promise, I promise, I promise, I promise. But currently that's the only show on my horizon outside of Relapse coming up. And Lewis, anything for you? Yeah, I have a few things in the works right now that I'd love to talk about a little bit. I recently was commissioned by Golden Jade Stages in Shanghai. I'm writing a new musical there. And I am going to start writing that hopefully sometime this week. I started sketching an overture. So that's one project. I have another musical just called It's Never Too Late that I'm writing with Lou DiPietro. And that is in the process of finding a regional theater home for some sort of like 
some sort of production. We'll see. We'll see what it what it is. And then I'm working on another another musical called Dalhinov with playwright Matt Gazda, who is very talented. And we are in rewrite stages right now. We had a reading in December, and we are hired a dramaturg and. We'll see what happens next. And other than that, just working with Jay on on relapse, writing some new songs, waiting for some for some new lyrics. Gonna set a reminder on my phone in two days saying receive lyrics right now from Jay. Just kidding, no rush. Yeah. So that's that's what's going on with me. Can I plug one more thing for myself, if that's okay? Yes, yes, please. I am finishing up the first uh, workshop draft of a new play that is hopefully going to premiere at the Tank later this year called Revelations, which is a Black family comedy uh, that has biblical proportions. It's about a bunch of siblings who come back to the family farm after their father has passed away and realize they are not who they believe they are. And the fate of the world may hang in the balance. So... Wow. Needless to say, you two are just cranking it out. We've got to keep tabs on you because this is amazing. And that leads me to my final question, which is if our listeners want more information about Relapse the Musical or either one of you, maybe they want to reach out to you. How can they do so? Listen to our concept album. Literally just search Relapse the Musical on everywhere and it'll come up like Apple Music, Spotify, Amazon Music. Amazon Music. There are a bunch of other weird ones. I don't I don't know. I don't remember the names, but yes, we also have a website, relapsemusical.com. Check us out. Yeah, we're also on Instagram, Relapse the Musical, and on Facebook, Relapse the Musical. But yeah, check out our our concept album. We recorded it in 2021 with some incredible talent, including Bryn Williams from 13 the Musical and Spongebob theme. And you can stream that on all platforms currently. So use it as your next car jam, you know? Amazing. Yeah. And then if you want to follow either one of us personally, my website will hopefully be up by the end of the month. But on social media, I am... uh, you can find me on Instagram at JustDanGia1395. And you can find me at JustinJacchetti on TikTok. So those are my handles. Yes. You can find me on the internet, lewisjosephson.com. Complicated spelling. Hopefully it'll be linked somewhere. Or you can look at my Zoom thing. Check out the space. Put a .com after. And there you go. Lewis J. Truly, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. This sounds so amazing, this show, and everything you're working on. I feel like I've like pulled back the curtain on the next great thing in theater with the two of you. So thank you so much for joining us and sharing everything. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. My guests today have been the composer and orchestrator Louis Josephson and the librettist and lyricist Jay Giacchetti, whose new show, Relapse the Musical, is currently preparing for an equity showcase in late summer, early fall. But you can listen to the concept album right now, anywhere you listen to music. Just search for Relapse the Musical 
you'll find it. You can also visit their website, relapsethemusical.com and check out information there. We also have a bunch of their social media contact information, which we're going to be posting in our episode description, as well as on our social media so that you can stay up to date on Relapse the Musical, as well as Jay and Lewis, because these two are about to do amazing, amazing things, really change the world of the theater. So you want to make sure to keep tabs on them. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez reminding you to turn off your cell phones, unwrap your candies, and keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. Two friends from old New York town met in a foreign land. One sang the praises of If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Maniac by Jazzar. Other music on this episode provided by Jazzar and Billy Murray. You can also become a patron of our show by logging on to patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. There you will find all the information about our backstage pass as well as our tip jar. Thank you so much for your generosity. We could not do this show without you.